Okay, I think we're in business. Yep, I just got prompted to leave the meeting. <laughs> no, please stay, don't leave. <laughs> no, I can't be recorded, that'd be terrible. Oh, no. <laughs> I, so, so none of this is on the record, right? <laughs> no, no, no one's going to hear this, fine, don't worry. Cool. <laughs> um, Matthew, Matthew Partridge, Errant Science, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, it's a pleasure to have you. No problem, Harry. Um, no, it's great uh, to great to be great to be on. Yeah. Um, so now, Matthew, you you graduated with a BSc in biochemistry and a PhD in um, fiber optic molecular sensors, and and you're known now for um, a company called Errant Science, which is your company. Um, and we'll come we'll come on to that in a little bit because it's quite quite interesting. Um, but before all that, before it all took off, if you like. Um, you were born in Kettering in North Hants and um, and you were packed off to boarding school when you were seven. Um, yep. I don't want to stop you drinking. Take that sip of your tea. No, 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 it's, it's fine. <laughs> I, I can drink and reply. I'm secretly a ventriloquist. Wow. Um, so um, tell me a little bit. First of all, which, which which school did you go to? Where where were you packed off to? And um, and what was it like? How did it feel? Um. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'd like to say my education started when I got off to boarding school, but obviously at aged seven, I had had other education. Um, I guess that was just the more dramatic part of my education, because instead of, you know, going down to the local uh, the local prep school, uh, the local primary school, uh, I was shipped off to Windsor, uh, where I went to St. George's in Windsor um and uh slightly dating myself uh people can now sit down and do do the do the calendar but i was i was at windsor boarding school when the windsor fire happened um so and if anybody who knows windsor geography uh i went to the little boarding school that's right at the bottom of the banks of the windsor castle uh and sure you we had like front row seats on a whacking great windsor fire which is pretty like it's cool dramatic thing to have in my childhood um but uh yeah i got to like we we couldn't play on our playing fields because they were covered in debris and stuff like that um but uh yeah so that was that was kind of like i i you know going into boarding school was quite dramatic so i guess that was that was you know a good place to start with my education um and uh yeah seeing a giant fire is just a fun memory I not guess, a great memory, I suppose, but a fun was one. It, was it clear to you that it was the, the the significance of it? Not that all fires aren't significant, but I mean, again, it, it was kind of pre-internet. So, and I'm a seven-year-old boy going, "Wow, that looks amazing!" <laughs> and it wasn't really until probably the next day, or probably even the day after that, when you know we had time to watch TV or whatever it was, uh, and um, I don't think we had the radio. Watch TV, and then there were kind of news reports about this kind of terrible fire and how damaging it was. But at the time, you know, you're seven years old, and there's bright lights, um, and uh, it's amazingly how compelling bright lights are to seven-year-olds. So um, that was that was the sort of the thrill. So um, you're still at boarding school, and um, you you started getting into a particular a particular author. Um, how old were you when you started reading Patricia Cornwall? Because I, I, I don't think that's I, necessarily suitable for a seven-year-old. It really, it really isn't. No, no. So yeah. So I, you know, going to boarding school pre-internet, I should say again. Uh, you know, you've got a lot of time, and I can't just kind of go out with my friends. I can't just kind of meet them at the local park. That you know, it doesn't quite work like that. Um, so I, and I just, I really loved reading. Um, you know, right the way through. So I read a lot of books and all sorts of stuff, and I started like, you know, I, I went through 
like stuff like Terry Pratchett um, and kind of quite fun stuff, more kid-focused stuff. Um, and I have no idea how I started reading Patricia Cornwall, uh, who is still writing, I believe, still writing the K. Scarpetta series that I read. Um, and uh, these books are about K. Scarpetta, who's this a pathologist who solves crimes and is inexplicably in the center of most of these crimes somehow um it makes for thrilling reading but makes no logical sense um and i just got i kind of got really into these books i kind of really i found them really fascinating um and my my parents are both pharmacists uh and um as i was kind of starting to read these books um i started to look in my kind of parents library my mum had a uh, hundred ways to kill someone and a hundred poisoners <laughs> i should say no, no one no one related or close to my mum has ever died in mysterious circumstances but she has the books uh and i just kind of really devoured these books i really enjoyed them and i thought they were really fascinating but not even kind of it was weird because obviously they're quite morbid but it, it wasn't the bit i was finding interesting wasn't the weird deaths or the strange circumstances it was the kind of the weirdly complicated poisons and the the sort of the the biochemical way that I suppose they work. Um, and I found those kind of very interesting. Um, you know, I think, you know, about a year before I, I, I kind of was probably getting into those books, I had a science teacher very resoundingly tell me that I should consider any career but science, um, mm. which, um, you know, I think, yeah, I, 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 I didn't really take that to heart. He wasn't my favourite science teacher, um, but it certainly, you know, I was, certainly was enjoying it enough that it was like, no, no, no. I'm pretty sure. I, I'm pretty sure a career in science will be just fine, <laughs> especially if it involves all these horrible, poisonous things. Uh, which, as it turns out, my career has not really involved very much. So, um, but uh, yeah, it kind of it gave me at least, you know, with two parents who are pharmacists and reading lots of books about horrible poisons when it came to kind of trying to choosing a degree that was kind of I guess kind of going through my head a little bit as to what I kind of wanted to do and, and how I wanted to to do a job in research mm -hmm. whatever that meant it certainly explains the biochemistry degree for sure well it, it would <laughs> um but uh that was not my it was not my first choice uh <laughs> so I opened the little UCAS handbook um and um I wanted to do a degree in um biotoxicology um and uh, in the little UCAS handbook I ran my finger down uh and I was like oh no oh, I needed a, I needed an A level in maths I don't have that oh scratch that <laughs> what's next oh I'll just do biochemistry and it was it was I remember sitting at the little computer in the little prep room at school with the little book uh and being like oh well that rules that out I guess I'll apply for this then and literally on the computer in front of me was my UCAS application and I just I just changed it from biotoxicology to biochemistry uh, uh and off I went um in one of those like changed my in not like life trajectory as such but changed my degree trajectory certainly uh on a on a complete random eh, can't do that do this instead I think that's fair enough absolutely uh you know relaxed attitude just what you need yeah I, I think that that really shines through in my terrible exam grades um <laughs> if I'd had only less of a relaxed attitude I may have done better in my exams but uh, it turns out none of those mattered so it was all right it really didn't matter because you've got a PhD mm. yeah yeah and um, it's something slightly different yeah so I did uh I did my bachelor's at Lancaster University um, which is a lovely, if very grey, rainy and damp university. Um, and 
um then I kind of I, I did my degree and I was kind of like well this is this is fine but I kind of want to go and do a job so I, I actually went an, into industry for about five years before going back to academia to do my PhD mm. um so I spent five years making diagnostics and then doing a little bit of consulting and stuff like that so then so back back to the back to the biochemistry you didn't have any teachers there this is at Lancaster you didn't have yeah. any teachers there telling you this wasn't the future for you not really. I mean, I was one of, I don't know how many cohorts. I'm not sure I had many teachers who even knew who I was most of the time. Okay. Uh, I mean, especially because I think I had a supervisor to do my dissertation, but he left halfway through. So like, it wasn't, you know, I didn't really leave there, you know, on first name terms with any of the professors. Um, you know, I, I didn't um, in any way kind of shine out. <laughs> I suppose I got my degree um, and I had a great time. It was lovely. So um, I made some good friends that I'm still friends with now, 20 something years later. So uh, that's all right. But um, yeah, no, there, there wasn't anybody who told me I still shouldn't consider a career in science. Um, uh, I think they'd at least resigned the fact that I was probably fairly committed. Yes. Being there doing a degree in biochemistry. Indeed, quite keen. Um, so then you left there. Your first job was, um, as you as you said, the di diagnostics. That um, so you were doing um, rapid blood tests for prostate cancer. Now that that presumably was lab based. It was, yeah. So I um, so at university, one of the subjects I I hated the most was immunology. Uh, if you've ever studied immunology, I found it tedious and boring. Um, so obviously, the first job I got was in was in immunodiagnostics. What did, um, you, what did you find so boring about? I I don't know. I think I think it was just the lecturer was boring. I don't know. I just remember really not liking that module and then ending up that was my job. <laughs> uh, in that way, because when you leave university, especially for lab jobs, you just want a lab job. Uh, you know, I wanted to work in a research lab and you don't really know what I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't really know what I could do. I mean, biochemistry is a very broad degree and there's a million jobs you can do with it. And fresh out of university, you don't really understand um, what it's like to do to do a job so um, I just kind of fished around and eventually I got offered a job doing this we're making immuno what are called immunodiagnostics which now the entire world knows very well because it's mm -hmm. the same technology that's behind the little covid rapid tests it's the little lateral flow step strips um, which back then the only people who had recognized it were people who were testing if they're pregnant um, which is also the same technology um, but yeah so for for a number of years I worked for a little company called MediWatch um, which I think has changed hands and been sold like three times since then. So is now no longer called that. Um, and they were making a 10 minute prostate cancer test um, using fingerprint samples. So when I came in, it hadn't gone to production yet. It hadn't quite finished development. So it was a bit of like day to day in the lab, um, testing them, trying out different antibody formulations, trying out different strips um shapes that kind of stuff um and you know trying to build a better test and then there was a bit of make the test something we can mass produce um and then there was a bit of test the test with some real people so it was kind of a it was a real like life cycle that i got to experience um which was very lucky to work at a small company because then i got to do everything as well so it was a good good time yeah um it, do it does sound quite comprehensive um and and then, so from there, you weren't tempted to carry on to another job. You 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 went back into academia at that point. Yeah, well, I, I really loved the job and I really enjoyed the kind of the research side of it. But I was particularly enjoying developing new tests, new diagnostics that I was started to kind of do as towards the end of my time there. And um, that was really fun. So 
I'd kind of realized I'd probably done as much as I could do at that small company. And I wanted to, to apply for jobs elsewhere. And when I was applying, I could see that there was a little bit of a an educational ceiling, so to speak, because if I if I didn't have a master's or if I didn't have a PhD, I couldn't get the slightly higher jobs developing stuff or designing my own things or running my own little team so it was like well okay well I'm I'm either gonna have to spend another five to ten years getting loads of experience and persuading people that I can do this and to promote me or I'm gonna have to go back to university and get a kind of another qualification so um, I went back to Cranfield University which is near Milton Keynes for anyone who doesn't know where that is um, and Cranfield is a is uh, was then a quite a rare thing. It was a post-grad only university. So there's no undergrads. There's only masters and PhDs. Um, and I went to do an MRes, um, which um, at the time I liked because it was a, a masters where you don't have to take any exams. You just write some stuff. Uh, and five years after university, my first university, I was definitely done taking exams for anything. Um, so the idea of an MRes appealed to me. Um, but I'd been there. I, I didn't even make it to the to the university before the the course was unfortunately pulled, and I got a call from the university saying, "Look, we we can't take you on the MRS because we've had to cancel the course. Um, but would you like to join a PhD instead?" And I was like, "Oh, sure. Yeah, I'll take the I'll take the better one. <laughs> that that sounds better than an MRS. Um, sure, I have to commit three years, but like I, don't, I won't even bother doing the masters. I'll just go straight to PhD. I'll skip a step. Uh, and so yeah, I started started my PhD instead, um, which was a bit strange because it all happened in like a week. I was literally kind of getting ready to go to back to university to do an MRS, and then I was getting ready, you know, two or three days later to go and start a PhD, um, which is an odd way to start one, really." Yeah, I guess so. I think a lot of people have got to sort of worry for a while about what what to do their PhD in. And it's quite unusual to go, hey, do you want to do that? Yeah, just yep. like that. Um, so, yeah, so I guess it's one of those things where if the funding's of, if they've got the funding, uh, and, you know, my experience later on in academia, if there's funding, you really want to spend the funding. And if you've got a good candidate that you like, or at least that you think you can probably get on with enough to meet with every other week, um, you kind of want to just jump on it and go for it. And I guess that was sort of what happened. Um, so, yeah. So it didn't matter necessarily even the subject matter of that PhD. It was it was more than... Not to some extent it did i mean i, I want to do so, so the mres was based on biosensors and i still you know i really enjoyed developing sensors uh as you know my, my immunodiagnostics and diagnostics and i wanted to keep doing that I, I really i really enjoyed kind of coming up with new ideas new ways to test for stuff and find things chemical things mostly not buried treasure and i wanted to keep doing that um so the phd had to still be developing sensors um and initially it was fiber optic sensors for finding benzene and toluene which was basically carrying on from another phd um but i very quickly kind of changed it and adapted it so we did the benzene and the toluene in the first couple of months and skipped straight on to doing a bunch of other stuff so we did all kinds of you know I, I measured all kinds of things with the fiber sensors designed new fiber sensor platforms and then eventually designed like a, a methodology for creating fiber sensors sort of manufacturing them um in a way that you know you can then coat and stick stuff on with and all that sort of thing so um yeah so did did, did a lot with it but it was good 
It was a good PhD. It was a, I had a you know, really lovely supervisor um, uh, at, uh, who's still at Cranfield. So Steve James, who I don't think has ever listened to any of the podcasts that I've done, but maybe he'll listen to this one, uh, is a brilliant supervisor. So We'll definitely send it to Stephen James. Hope he, <laughs> hope he gets to him. Mm. Um, so, I mean, you, you were doing you were doing that for a while and coupling that with a little bit of consultancy work. And you've got a couple of interesting stories from that. Um, and in between then and now, I'm just wondering when it was that you worked out that you could draw. So uh, never. I still can't draw. Um so back, back, go, go back to MediWatch and my first job. You really like it's a small company, and there really was like there was literally three of us in this lab, and one of the three uh, played golf half the time. So it was really just two of us. And then there was kind of a, a head office that did a few things, but basically like every all the all the jobs that needed doing by normally a large multinational of people we had to do so um even to the point when we were creating the test we wanted to do to include like a little guide to tell nurses how to use it and we wanted to illustrate it so i offered to draw this guide so i drew um unfortunately if i only had one to hand but uh i drew like a step-by-step guide of how to do this test and that was probably like the one of the first things i did i was like oh this is the, you know i'm turns out i'm not terrible at art um if if i just put my mind to it and are paid um and so that was i did that and around the same time i'd started writing like a blog um like a personal blog while i was you know i do it on my lunch breaks and I found that um, it was kind of fun and I enjoyed it. But if I just include Google images all the time, A, I was li- liable to get in trouble for copyright sooner or later. Uh, and B, it just looked a bit bland. So I started drawing like little cartoons for that. But they were, I say drawing, what they were was a series of circles <laughs> that I drew in like an equivalent of MS Paint. Um, so it was just like a little circle for a head, a little circle for a body and circles for hands and circles for feet um, with a little text underneath. Um, and a little cartoon character, his little name was Dis, D-I-S. And I drew him for every article that I wrote. Um, and I was kind of writing like five a week, something like that. So it was a lot. Um, and uh, I did these cartoons to go with it. And uh, so that was the first kind of cartoon character I made. And I kind of liked doing that. That was really fun. Um, But it was, you know, it was quite time consuming. And towards the end of the job, when I was doing some of the consulting, I, I, you know, I kind of ended that. But I kind of, it was enjoyable. And the six people that read it always said lovely things about it. Um, And so I kind of, you know, that was always in my mind. Um, And then towards the end of my PhD, because by that time, it'd been about five years since I'd stopped doing the blog. I was like, well, it would be, you know, social media is growing ever faster. You know, it'd be really good to have a departmental blog to kind of talk about all the things the department does and kind of show off what we do. And I've done blogging before I can do, I can do blogging. Um, So again, I started a, I started a blog for the department uh, ostensibly um, and then within about three months it became clear it wasn't really the department's blog at all it was my blog <laughs> so what was um, engineering photonics um, blog became errant science so the first few articles of errant science were originally engineering and photonics articles um, and then it, it morphed into this other thing um, and then just like before I realized that 
articles are fun but articles are way more fun if they're illustrated and so i stuck a little cartoon character in which at the time you know started to be little hand-drawn circles on a little paint program and then it got to be sticky notes where i'd drawn something and taken a photo and then just attached that image um and then it became sticky notes where i'd taken a photo i then manipulated it to look a bit more computery and put that in um and then it became drawn on like a, a tablet uh, an ipad mini and it just kind of very slowly kind of migrated um and now the blog barely posts and the cartoons are daily the cartoons have taken over they you know we're long past the origins of the blog um the cartoons killed the blog um the blog is dead um but people what like the cartoons more than they like my writing which is fine i i've learned to accept this it's only been 15 years but i'm eventually coming to terms with it it's nice how the technology kept pace with the evolution of how of, of that journey. I think I think it was more the 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 what I could afford. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could have got a Wacom tablet right away. They they existed, um, but it was you know I'm I'm drawing hand drawn stick figures. It's hard to argue that that's worth the money. Um, but yeah, I did. I slowly increased. I you know I put more work or more money into it. <laughs> the more people were reading it to some extent. So it's like, oh, I should probably make these half decent. So, so I'll ask you a little bit more about the the cartoons and errant science in a minute. Um, but um, we just uh, just skip back a little bit back to the consultancy work you did because you had a couple of quite interesting sounding clients. Um, yeah. So after after I worked at MediWatch, um, I obviously got the MRES place quite a, many months beforehand, um, and so I handed in my notice and. and um, I, I got offered by um, two people who worked quite close to me and who I knew quite well, some consulting work. And one of them was an artist called Jane Eden. Um, she's a brilliant artist. Everyone should immediately Google her. Um, please pause the podcast. Uh, we'll wait. Um, and she specializes in, in beautiful art that kind of is looking at biomechanics, I suppose, in some of her art pieces, but in other art pieces is looking at um, does a lot with birds and, and things like that as well. But one of the, the things that she'd been commissioned to do at the time was to create um, bollards um, that had little dioramas in them. So you would peer into the little hole in the in the in a little viewfinder in the bollard, and inside is like a little diorama. Um, and so, yeah, and she, you know, so that was one of the projects she was working on at the time. Um, where were those bollards? Uh, they are in Wales. Gosh. So, um, I, I think the they're in. Uh, I, if I, if I'm, I, I believe they're in Cardiff. Uh, they're in Cardiff uh, city centre. Um, so, but they've been there a long time. So, uh, I think they're still doing well. They're yeah. like art installations. No, no, they're, they're bollards. They're, they're they're regular bollards around the city centre. Um, but they have little view view holes, and you can appear into them. But there's a, there's signs up and stuff. They're they're very well signposted. But uh, um, but yeah, they are absolutely brilliant. Um, and she was working on another project at the time with Kew Gardens, caught with the Economic Botany Collection, which is um, again another brilliant thing that everybody should immediately go and read about because the economic botany collection at Q is a fascinating scientific trove of mad things um but she was working on doing an art project with that so she paid me to do a whole load of research into all these weird artifacts from the 1800s um so that was that was really great um and then alongside that um there was a synthetic chemist um who was interested in a number of little 
projects that he wanted to get done but didn't have time and so he paid me to do some contract research developing um ways to test the quality of a pap smear chemical so the the chemical behind uh the way that pap smears are done um he wanted to develop a test to prove that it was good that it was a good chemical when you know you've got a good batch or when you know you've got a bad batch so that there can be better quality control um so that you know pat labs can make sure they're doing the best quality tests they can do um and so yeah i did that that uh, as well so that was a, a really fascinating little project it does sound it. And just, just to clarify, PAP, PAP is it's the PAP is the smear test. It's so, the smear test, yes. Yeah. Um, and that PAP is short for the name of the person who devised it. Uh, no, it isn't short, but the, the, isn't it short for papilloma? I can't remember. Yes, no, I don't know. Can't remember that bit. Um, uh, I can I can only tell I can tell you I can tell you all about the stain hematoxylin and its oxidation rates, which is the <laughs> the, the chemical bit. I could do that bit. <laughs> a rather chemical bit. Um, um, so yeah, so I got to do you know two quite interesting things. Again, really kind of fun, different projects, but still science and research and the 1800s was stuff particularly was just a massive nerd for the 1800s kind of science uh era um a big part of my phd um thesis and my literature review i wrote about the development of fiber optics in the 1800s which was really fun because i was a biochemist working with physicists none of whom knew any of that story and it was like well you should know it it's brilliant and fascinating and then um on the back of kind of some of the stuff that I'd researched my thesis, um, I did uh, a show at the Fringe uh, all about uh, how fibre optics can destroy or save the world. Um, and it kind of tells you the story and the history of fibre optics, but through kind of ways that those fibre optics can do amazing things now. So it was kind of a bit of an outreach thing and a bit of a stand-up comedy thing up at the Fringe, um, which I did uh, twice, so... Wow, I don't. You don't. There are so many times I find that people that the that scientists have a, have an artistic outlet, and I kind of you knew it with you being a being doing what you do, um, but I didn't realize you had quite quite such an artistic outlet performing um, as well. No, it's just I'm just faking it. It's it's all lies. Um, <laughs> so you're just just pretending that I that I have an artistic output. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, we'll carry on pretending for a minute then. Um, L- luckily, no one in the audience uh, rumbled that I was still pretending when I was on stage, so it was fine. <laughs> got away with it. Um, so now um, you've got quite a lot of experience now under your belt, a lot of education, a lot of qualifications, a lot of fun by mm. the sense of it. Um, and, and, you, and you decided to set up your own company, Errant Science, which you've mentioned. Um, tell us about the name, Errant. Uh, for itself, but I don't want to make assumptions. Um, so, uh, so first thing about the name is, uh, for quite a long time, and I say a long time, I mean like three years, um, I didn't pronounce it Errant. <laughs> Everybody else does, <laughs> but okay. it just it's not a word you hear very often. So I miss would mispronounce it Errant um so errant errant so it's quite hard to say it the wrong way now i've kind of eventually got myself out of the habit so for a long time i couldn't pronounce my own website um but um i chose that because i, I needed a brand it needed a name 
Uh, I needed to choose something. Um, I wanted it to be something science because I always wanted it to be about science. Uh, and um, I chose errant because uh, errant. Uh, I chose errant because um, I thought like, the idea of kind of errant knights who kind of would go and just do random stuff they weren't really married to any particular place they would just go from place to place doing sort of almost not quite nights for hire but sort of random quests um and then it, it's that you know it has the double meaning of to, to be errant is to be an outlier it's to be um different um which again it fits quite nicely with a blog that i think whose tagline I can't remember if it still is, but it was for a long time. It, it's an, an irreverent look at science. It's designed to be like a like a silly like send up of science sometimes or life in research. Lovely. It's a it's a lovely story how you got to that name. I I really enjoy it. Um and and tell us a bit more about the company. What 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 you do there? How how it works? And who um, you work with. So I mean the, the I guess the the company is the. Is the, is the end of not the end of it but uh where we are now with it because it's taken a very long time to evolve into that so um it was a blog i was doing you know in my spare time and cartoons i was doing you know in my lunch times and things like that and then you know over time we'd get kind of the odd request to do something where someone would be like oh could you draw me a cartoon and i draw them a cartoon and then you know, we get other requests, you know, here and there to do specific things. And then um, I think one year on a little bit of a whim, I decided to cartoon Royal Society of Chemistry as Twitter conference. And that uh, is a, is an online conference. It's no longer on Twitter. It's moved to LinkedIn this year. But until this year, it was on Twitter uh, with lots and lots of posters that people put online for 24 hours. And I drew a whole bunch of cartoons in this 24-hour period um, for a whole bunch of people. And it was like a like a live event thing that we did. And then next year, we got in touch with the Royal Society of Chemistry and said, hey, we'd love to do it again, but it was it was so much work. Could we, could we have something for that? And they were like, yeah, sure, we'll pay you for that. And I was like, oh we could maybe make money out of this um you know maybe we could do produce content that people want and get some pay for it and then not from that but certainly that kind of gave us a bit of the idea that we could go and maybe do some other things we could go to conferences we, we went to egu which is a huge conference in in vienna every year and we were the the conference we, we were the car the conference cartoonist one year and then the following year they created something called the artist in residence program um for for us to be there because we they wanted to pay us more so they needed to create a thing that it, that it was and we were the artist in residence that year alongside um sam ellingworth who was the poet in residence so we produced some combo stuff um and there, the EGU ever since then has always had an artist in residence. Uh, I like that it was a role that was created for us and has continued to exist. But that was, again, something where they wanted us to produce cartoon content from all their posters and all their science that they were doing throughout their conference and for us to put up online, of them to put up online. Um, and I just kind of enjoyed doing that a lot. And I thought, I will keep trying to do this whenever I get a random spare moment. It got, I can go to random science conferences and draw random bits of science. This is fantastic. I seeing understanding science is already my day job um this isn't really adding extra work it's just adding doodling to the work that i was already doing um so it kind of fitted really really well 
Um, and on top of that, we, we'd occasionally get asked to come and give talks and training about how we craft those cartoons or how we craft those stories. And then that evolved a bit into training on how to do social media for scientists, which we give as well. So we run training courses for not only to teach scientists how to draw cartoons, but we teach we run training courses on how to storify research and how to do social media. Um, and all of that, you know, I was doing here and there in and amongst, you know, um, my my full time job and uh, having kids, um, and I I have two fantastic kids, um, and um, I became a, a, a single dad, and being an academic, a full time academic, and being a single dad is pretty hard, and I found it a bit too difficult to try and do that at the same time. Whereas it turns out drawing cartoons a lot easier than writing research grants or writing papers. Um, so it was kind of quite good that I could just basically stop my full-time job for a while. I can go on sabbatical, which is what I keep calling it, but it's now been three years. Um, I can go on a bit of a break, a career break, and I can just draw cartoons and communicate science. And at that point, that was when it stopped being like, a fun little side company that I can kind of earn some extra pocket money with and became a thing that I needed to turn on the lights with and pay for food with as well. So it became, you know, I suddenly had a, more of an impetus to go out and get, you know, make find people who needed our services and produce good quality content for them and uh, and that sort of thing. Um, and then, and since then we've done all sorts of things. We've, we've helped design manuals for board games with, um, kind of illustrations we've done conference programs we've done a lot of live cartooning at conferences and, and virtual conferences a lot of training um and we've even made a plushie of one of our cartoons for somebody um because they wanted a, a shark cat that they could take to conferences and show on their social media feeds um so yeah we've done some weird and wacky wonderful stuff but mostly it involves either helping other helping other people prepare their outreach or doing outreach for people it's kind of one of those two things um is definitely what we we do at the moment oh it's it's so it sounds so much fun you really and you really make it sound so much fun as well and um even, even though there's a slight serious note in there along the way um and i just wondered if you if you had any thoughts about why it actually works so well why why cartoons resonate so well with people and why it's such a good way of explaining what it is that needs to be explained um well i think you know i think cartoons work very well because they are very uh good at reaching or across or outside of a very specific field sometimes where you have a paper or something like that which can only really be well read by people who are either in your exact field or in very closely related fields drawing a cartoon of your work will reach people even further than that drawing something that kind of makes fun of it is is a nice flag a nice way of people going what what that that's that's really interesting I, I want to know what that's about. Um, and cartoons are quite good because they're quite visually striking. They work really well on social media. Um, you know, people are more likely to look at a cartoon than they are to read an article. Um, and they, by their nature, they're designed to be simplistic and expressive. So you don't draw an accurate HPLC machine. You draw a box and you write on the bottom HPLC. 
and everybody knows that that square rectangle or rectangle is an HPLC. You don't have to draw stuff accurately. You just have to kind of roughly explain through pictorially what can be very complicated things, but done in such a way that someone, anyone could look at it and immediately understand the kind of core piece of that work. Um, you know, it, it's, it's uh, amazing what, people will recognize or people will understand without it needing to be a technical drawing you know even like paper uh paper like uh visual abstracts that a lot of journals do these days still have to be accurate technical figures or diagrams and mostly those are terrible because those are very hard and you have to kind of unpick them and have to have a very long caption underneath whereas a cartoon should be something you look at immediately and go huh what I want to see that. I want to know that. I want to understand that. Or, oh, I kind of get what they're doing. You know, it should it should have one very clear, quick little message that that just resonates with people. Um, and that's what we try to draw. And that's what we try to teach people to draw as well. Um, you know, it's it's all about that, keeping it simple. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm not sure when our next uh, live training session is, so I can't even plug it. But we'll do a, we'll do one eventually, and everybody can come. But uh, at some point, we're we're we're, we're the ones that we're doing at the moment are all um, uh, in house, so uh, uh, for for other people. But uh, we do do public ones from time to time. Brilliant. Well, we'll look out for those. Um, so uh, it seems it. It seems like um, a silly question to ask, really, because it sounds like you have the best time all the time. Um, but I wondered if you had a, a particular fond memory um, of being it, doing the lab work. Oof. Um, I, I really loved lab work. And I, I'm really like, even though I do the cartooning now full time and I love it to bits, I really enjoy it. Um, I miss the lab terribly. Like I get, I do a little bit of, of consulting still i help a few people out um here and there and occasionally that means i get to go into the lab and pretend that i know what i'm doing and i'm very experienced and and tell people what to do and i really love being back in the lab it's like occasionally they'll say oh we're sorry for taking up all of your time it's like no please let me let me stay here longer i'll stay i'll stay let, let me stay overnight um so i really miss the lab and like i look back at you know my years in the lab really really fondly but all of my like all of my really good like really amazing memories are proper like when i had like eureka moments when stuff like worked like just you know i had a bit of a random idea the night before and i came into the lab and it's like wow that <laughs> this ridiculously stupid idea i had that i thought was stupid is actually brilliant and i'm a genius <laughs> i am gonna win the nobel prize it's if nothing i've invented is that good but <laughs> you know at the time you invent stuff or at the time you know that little thing you know you see that trace of data and it's got the, the little uptick where there should be an uptick and you're like wow holy crap it worked and that is just the most amazing feeling um and yeah it's 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 it is like a proper drug um and uh it's you know i've not been in that not had that kind of that sort of thing in, in a few years and um i still am jonesing for it pretty bad um get get like the withdrawal shakes and everything so so if if you're listening and uh you've got a spare space on a lab bench then get it get in touch with Matty. if if you make us a visiting researcher we will come and hang out in your lab and draw cartoons of your lab <laughs> i just i i'll just i'll just come and play with some pets i'll, I'll be in my element promise brilliant <laughs> um so let's say um you've got control of the future um 
what's your dream scenario what would you like most um I'd like to never, ever have to apply for money again. Um, it was the thing that I hated doing in academia, like having to apply for grants and funding is I, I, I've written so many articles about the like the funding system in the UK and in Europe. Uh, it just makes me so mad. Um, and it's so frustrating that it just took away a lot of time from doing research, was worrying about where we were going to get money to do research. Um, and that is still true as a cartoonist. It's just a different kind of pressure because, you know, as, as I said, I, you know, I, I, I'm drawing cartoons and trying to make a living out of it. Um, I, I, you know, not only do I have to worry about um, how to make um, some very obscure mathematical formula, a funny, interesting cartoon, I also have to worry about whether or not I could charge someone for that cartoon um, because I, I, you know, my, my daughter would quite like to go to theatre uh, or, or whatever it is that, that I need to pay for. And it never stops being a big driving force behind either science or being creative is this kind of perpetual looming fear of having to apply for money or having to write grants, which again, we still do even as a cartoonist, we we, we help prepare outreach grants for, for people. Um, and so... Um, if I could wave a magic wand, I, it would be a magic wand for myself and for others. It would be to completely revamp all of the funding in the sciences because the current system makes me so mad. <laughs> is is there a particular project that you would like currently to get funded? Oh, God, that's a good question. Hmm. Um, yeah, so back when I first started my PhD, um, I work with a technology called Langmuir Blodgett, um, which it's nobody, Langmuir Blodgett, uh, it's named after Irvin Langmuir and Catherine Blodgett. Um, and it's a very niche, it's really niche. <laughs> There's only, I think at the time I was working on it, I was the fourth researcher in the UK. And during the time I worked on it, one of them sadly passed away and two of them retired. So for a brief while, I think it was just me and <laughs> And then I stopped. So I don't know. I don't know where that field is now, but I'm pretty sure it's pretty niche. Um, but while I was working on it, um, I did a collaboration with one of the others and uh, a synthetic chemist, and we found a particularly odd effect. And it's a really, I'm not going to explain it, but it was a very odd effect on the surface of these fil thin films that we were creating. And um, between then, and when I stopped stopped working in the university a few years ago, I would periodically go back to it and just sort of look at the data and, and kind of play with it because there's there's something really fascinating was going on with the chemistry, like really importantly fascinating. But I need about a five-year research grant to do it. So if there was a, I think if there was like a, a project that I could kind of do, it would be that. I want, I want to spend five years researching this thing that I've got a crazy hunch <laughs> and some slightly interesting data but i can't i'm very sure i can't persuade any funder to ever fund it but i'm sure it's interesting <laughs> so there you go that's my that's my crazed project but um, that can come under the magic wand then yeah I, I i've been obsessing about that for 13 years i think that's fair enough that, that i want that one to, to happen Great number 13 hmm. so look if people want to see if anyone wants to see your um cartoons where do they go um you could see the cartoons on errantscience.com and on errant science's various social media feeds um we're errant science on literally everything um if you find a social media that we're not on um 
wow, you've done well because we're pretty efficient at joining them. Um, you can also find our cartoons in a bunch of little places where they tend to pop up because we do commissions for people. Um, but they are in every issue of Lab News um, at the back with some other fun content. And they're in every issue of Lab Horizons, which is a new magazine that not only do we do cartoons do for, but we also do articles for as well. So there's a whole bunch of our stuff in there. Um, so yeah, but go to errantscience.com and then all of the other places that you can find us. Wonderful. Well, well, I I can't wait to go and have a a proper a proper look through, um, and and hopefully a few other people will as well. Um, well, thank you, Matthew. That was really really fun. Um, it's what an interesting what an interesting route you've taken to get to where you are. Um, and uh, I uh, look forward to seeing much more of your work henceforth. <laughs>